we weren't we were in the book of First Kings last week. In the book of First Kings, we considered really the magnificent uh, event that the Lord accomplished on Mount Carmel with the prophet Elijah. We looked at that. We considered the glory of God. Read in your hearing not only was the passage in First Kings, but also Revelation chapter four, when we considered what was occurring in heaven, not only at the moment that uh, Elijah was on Mount Carmel, but also at this very moment as well. And I'd like to draw your attention to a specific subject, and that is the subject of repentance this morning, the subject of repentance. We see this idea gloriously magnified in the book of 1 Kings. And uh, so I'd like to, again, consider, we were looking at 1 Kings, um, and as we look here at at 1 Kings chapter 8, The kingdom of Israel is at the pinnacle of her glory. The magnificent temple of Solomon is being dedicated after seven years of construction. So right now, at this moment, we look here, and I draw your attention to the book of 1 Kings in chapter 8. So you can imagine what is occurring in the nation of Israel. Uh, The glory days of David, the expansion of the kingdom to that which God had given to them, has been accomplished. David was prevented from building the temple because we see that there wasn't the accompanying necessity of peacefulness that David had won through the work of God, such that the temple then could be built, and such that God could display His glory among a people that He promised. So we're, we're at this very moment. Here's Solomon. He's praying at the dedication of the temple. He's regaling in all the glories of God as they really uh, marshal all of those animals that will be sacrificed on the altar there at the tabernacle. There's a reference to the cherubim that are above there in the ark. The, the idea of the Holy of Holies is presented right here in First uh, Kings chapter 8. The pinnacle of the glory of the kingdom of Israel. And so we look here in First Kings 8 beginning in verse 1. Solomon assembled the elders of Israel... All the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before the king Solomon in in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David. There they are. There they are carrying the ark. All the men of Israel assembled at the feast in the month Ephanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders came up and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark here in all of its majesty, all of its glory here. The ark is coming. I want, you to, I want to make sure you get the picture here. If there is any, any connection between earth and heaven, it's right here at this moment in 1 Kings chapter 8. There is no other glorious, more glorious event likely in all of the Scriptures on earth than right here in this passage in 1 Kings chapter 8. Imagine, if you will, again, the very pinnacle of the declaration of the glory of God here, right here, as the temple is dedicated. All of these, the priests in verse 6, brought the ark of the covenant to the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house of the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark and they overshadow the ark and its poles. We see in verse 10, When the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Point to a time in Scripture 
where you see a more glorious representation of, of our mighty God come down to dwell with men, abiding with men, right here. And so his servant Solomon, spoken of certainly even before, before the life of David, and from Solomon, that one which of course points to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, and the mighty conquering King. Here is Solomon as he blesses the Lord here. And we see that, again, he regales in the glories of God. Solomon said in verse 12, The Lord has said that He would dwell in thick darkness. And that is, in fact, what He is doing here in the temple. Verses 22 to 27. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Children, right now in heaven, there is magnificent worship going on in something that far exceeds the glory of the temple of Solomon. And that's occurring now, right now, as we worship Him, as we submit ourselves to His Word. Again, Solomon said in verse 23, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like You in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to Your servants who walk before You with all their heart, who have kept with Your servant David, my father, that You declared to him, You spoke with Your mouth and with Your hand, have fulfilled it in this day. Verse 25, Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, I would like for you to make notes of this little word in verse 25. The word if. If. You'll see that word more as we read more of 1 Kings chapter 8. This word, if. We have a dramatic change in Solomon's prayer, right here in verse 27. So again, all of, all of the glories that are possible on earth are all marshaled here, children, in the temple of God. There's none, none left out. There's no, there's no glorious, shiny thing or person that was, that was left out of this glorious moment. And here is Solomon. Here is Solomon regaling on the glories of God and talking about this future covenant that would be of course, with that son of David that would be the eternal son, the one that didn't see corruption like David did. For as the Apostle Paul said, his tomb is here. You can see it this day. No one celebrates at the tomb of Christ because he isn't there. He didn't see corruption. He was the son of David that would sit on the throne forever and ever. But here we have this dramatic change of tone in the midst of an emphasis on the glory and goodness. Solomon is used of the Lord to consider not the grandiose and colorful glory of Israel in her obedience, 
but Israel in her sinful degradation. Verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up, And there is no rain because they have sinned against you. If they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. You turn on your water at your house. Does it occur to you that we're in a very significant drought in Texas? When you see that water flowing down, you want to see dried up drought, you come out and look at my pond at my house. Likely never looked like it does because of a drought. Did you ever wonder why we don't have any rain? It's not a weather thing. It's not a weather thing. If we, if we as God's people recognized that our sovereign God is the one who provides rain, our sovereign God provides rain and He withholds rain. He withholds rain. And so you go look at my pasture and you'll see dried up, dried up grass. The best grass I've ever had, mind you, but it's not growing because there's no rain. Because of the judgment of God. Now you may say, well, the East Coast doesn't appear to be enduring the judgment of God. Well, don't get the idea it's because they're so blessed in their glorious repentance. But you see, nonetheless, that the drought is an impression And it's an expression of the judgment of God. We are under the judgment of God. Not merely because we have no rain. Not merely because my pasture is dry. But we should, again, see when we think of, when we think of rain, the Bible would direct our thoughts, not initially to pray for rain, which we should do, but that we would pray that God would pull us to repentance. Pull us to a turning away from our sin and a turning to God. This is what Solomon is getting at right here. And he continues in verse 46. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned! and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you. 
and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. Is it any wonder that after the grand fall of the nation of Israel in the exile due to their sins, that they moved away from the worship and dependence on God to a growing righteousness built upon the faulty foundation of an established self-righteousness, from obedience to those portions of the law they arrogantly figured they could perfectly obey. As we see the sweep of God's hand through the Bible, what we will begin to see here... So right now, in the book of 1 Kings, we see Israel in her days of glory. But you'll quickly notice in the book of 2 Kings, in the last part of the book of 1 Kings, that that glory has in many ways departed. That glory has departed, you will notice. And when it did, those in exile began not to focus on the worship of Almighty God and the dependence upon God for His alien righteousness, for His righteousness that, as was said about Abraham, was a righteousness applied to Him by faith. By faith. Not as a result of the magnificent sacrificial system, which God surely had called them to, again, to represent that which would come in the future, the Lord Jesus. That was always necessary for them to enjoy a true and complete forgiveness. But they did turn from that in exile to a damnable self-righteousness that the Lord Jesus Christ, when He walked this earth, railed against at every turn to draw them back to that which was right and true, a dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ for righteousness. Never, never removing a call to repentance. They entered into a self-righteousness that was never called upon by God. And I should make a note, a mental note, a verbal mental note to you. The self-righteousness that was rejected by God here in the book of First Kings and also by His Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. This self-righteousness based on an extraction of certain portions of the Word of God, the tithing of dill and cumin, such that they would pat themselves on the back and be righteous. That righteousness is not the same as gospel obedience. As an urgency and a rigor and a desire, not by mere courtesy that I follow the Lord, but that I might delight myself in what it is that God has given me to do in a way in which I should live. And that is the way of life. And that is the only way of life. That which is initiated, of course, by God Himself. And He says, this is the way. Walk ye in it. The Bible says in Psalm 37, Delight yourself in the Lord. You want to get everything you want? God says in Psalm 37 that you would then shape your wanter by the grace of God into that which He would have you desire. And that's the idea. That's gospel obedience. And while we rightly rail against the self-righteousness based on an imperfect obedience to the law, we rightly 
incline ourselves to the sweetness of a gospel obedience, which Solomon is speaking of here. He says in verse 46, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. I referred last last week to this idea that often, really culturally, I would expect that a majority of people project on the character of God this idea that His demand was perfect obedience and that Israel was cast out of the nation of Israel, hard fought by David because they failed at one point in the law. If you believe that represents the character of God, then you have applied to God that which is so ungodly and so false from this warm and loving Father that we we must understand the sweetness of God in this. But nonetheless, He does call us to delight ourselves through the new birth to follow Him. This is the way. Walk ye in it. The kingdom here represents this idea that they've studiously isolated themselves from the need of repentance and literally shut themselves out of the grace of God through not only a refusal to repent, but a theologically rigorous argument that rejects the very idea of repentance and the entire reason for the selection of Abraham in the first place to provide a Savior. Now, what am I I saying? Well, again, I'm drawing your attention not only to those that were, that were cohorts with Solomon, but those who were cohorts of those who rejected and basically put the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. This idea that not only was repentance unnecessary, but they studiously practiced something that was in opposition to it. It was unneedful. But we see the truth of the matter is far, far different. Now that was then. Now I want to I draw you in to today. June 2022, year of our Lord. Here we are. Where do we find ourselves? Is repentance no longer necessary? Did the new covenant take away the very notion and the necessity of repentance in our growing relationship to Christ. Well, friends, when did the new covenant begin? Solomon is in the new covenant. Solomon is in the covenant of grace. Solomon is proclaiming by prophetic word the very truths of the covenant of grace. If they repent, then He will come and abide with them. Is there any difference between what Solomon said and what John the Baptist said, that last prophet of the Old Testament, what the Lord Jesus, the one who He would speak of, what He said? Where are we? Let's look at ourselves. Let's look at ourselves. This may be uncomfortable. Ladies, Fail to thrive in the basic functions of biblical homemaking. Men make peace with a certain level of sinfulness and they call it just who I am, part of my character, when in fact it's a characterological sin. When will you really turn from this? 
When will you earnestly set in motion your tactical plan to fight and destroy sin in your life and enter into greater levels of holiness and its accompanying joy? Is it really God's purpose that you spend your life lamenting over the same sin, affirming that we are imperfect until heaven, and never actually enjoying victory over characterological sin? Is it really God's purpose that you never look back and see the Lord's hand in continuing the work that He began at your conversion? Is that God's purpose for you? What aspects of abiding with Christ are you robbing yourself and your family of God's church, of the community, and nation? Not because you're unredeemed, but because you're unrepentant. Not because you're unredeemed. We pray that if you're yet unredeemed, that God will save you and will save you into a life of repentance into a life of repentance and you say oh God that's life that's life a life of repentance a life of of admitting my sin a life of being drawn open and transparent before your people is that life God? a walk a growing walk in holiness is life A life which God has designed can only be by the shaping of God through His Word by His people. Friends, if if holiness is not something that is joyful to you, then heaven is going to be hell for you. And you won't be there. Because the Bible reveals that if you remain unrepentant, then what would be true of you is that you, in fact, are unredeemed. Because the redeemed repent. The redeemed repent. Day after day. We should ask ourselves this question. It's appropriate that you do. Is repentance the same as confession of sin? You know... Churches are on the wane. Well, that means they're, they're going down, children. They're less popular today than they were even yesterday. And I noticed when I was stationed at, at, uh, at Camp Lejeune just a few years ago, I noticed that while Camp Lejeune enjoys some glorious and beautiful chapels, I was looking around at all the gyms at Camp Lejeune. And I noticed that on all the gyms at Camp Lejeune, there was this pinnacle on each of the buildings that actually looked like a steeple. And I thought, that's very interesting. That's very interesting that we we have this thing that looks like a church. And it was so fitting for the culture, because our culture worships health. Our culture worships self. Our culture is narcissistic. Our culture is really can be illustrated by the very mirrors in this room. Because people like to look at themselves. 
But the problem is, is they don't really know what they're looking at. And so the Bible reveals this to us. And while the gym has become the church, the public confession of my foibles and difficulties has also become popular. You can call up podcast after podcast if you want, and you can hear people talking about their worst things that they've ever done. And so we see now that that often the podcast, the Instagram account, is the place where I confess things. Is confession the same as repentance? No. No, no. Should we confess our sins? Yes, we should. But confession isn't the same as repentance. Many are more than willing to publicly admit their common sins. But is this tearful admission the same as God-empowered turning from your sin? There is a sorrow that leads to life. But there is also a sorrow that leads to death. That ends in death. Are they fake tears? No. No, many times the confession isn't fake tears, but it comes short of repentance. You may have actually enjoyed the commendation of your peers for your transparency, and even been considered spiritually mature due to your basic recognition that when compared with holiness in Scripture, you're failing and pulling those around you into deeper levels of ministry. Of misery, I should say. I'm going to say this again. You may have actually enjoyed the commendation of your peers for your transparency and even been considered spiritually mature due to your basic recognition that when compared with holiness in Scripture, you are failing and pulling those around you into deeper levels of misery. But what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? Solomon, again, it should echo in our minds. If, if they turn, if they turn to you, if they turn away from their sins. You may say, no, 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 no. No, we're we're in the new covenant now. And see, this is one of the major problems with the rejection of the law of God with an overemphasis on the justification aspect of salvation and an underemphasis on the complete aspect of, of salvation, which includes the initiation, of course, of God the Father before we could say time began, right? That also includes justification and sanctification and glorification, right? This idea, do you realize, why were, why were you saved? So you can have your best life now? No! You were saved for this body of good works for the glory of God. And the question that you should ask yourself is, how am I doing on that? What are you doing about it? When will you get serious with God and marshal all of the forces of the means of grace to live life on even higher planes of fruitfulness and joy? Repentance, what is it? What is repentance? Is it that thing I do in my conversion never repeated again? You say, well, I did that. I earnestly came to God in repentance and faith, and I came to Him and and praise the Lord, I did that, and so it's over. The box is checked. 
Since I am freed from the law, does sin no longer matter? Does the substitutionary righteousness of Christ blind the Father from the negative impact of of our relationship if it would suffer, if He were to see the way I sin against Him? Have you ever been told that God doesn't see you sin? That it doesn't matter? That nothing will change the way that He is drawn to you? That's a lie. That isn't true. We can look right here in 1 Kings chapter 8. Heard in your reading. When Solomon is saying, when your people are removed from the land and they're conquered by their enemies because of their own sinfulness. You want, do you think that's an impact of their sin? Do you, think that, do you think that their relationship with God has changed at all? Oh, yes. They're no longer enjoying abiding with God. But yet, he hasn't walked away from his covenant. He's called, there were certainly redeemed people that were swept out of the land of Israel to dwell in exile. Certainly there were people redeemed. Certainly there were those that were swept. Those that loved God and loved His people. Those that were devoted to His Word. Those that understood that their righteousness was an alien righteousness that was brought about because of their faith. The same as Abraham. Surely there were people just like that. But these were the communal sins of of the people. And in their rejection of God, and their refusal to repent, they were swept away. Swept away. Surely there were those that were faithful. And we'll read of them as we continue on looking into the Bible. Does the substitutionary righteousness of Christ blind the Father of the negative impact that your parental sins... The ways that you sin against the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit day after day, even after your redemption, does it impact your relationship to God? Yes. 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 Those of you that have walked with the Lord for a short time or a long time surely can look into the annals of your experience with God and you can say to yourself, these were good days. And these were not so good. Did God leave you then? No. He didn't leave you. So what happened? Is it, could it only be you? No. It may be that God again has purposes that you are unaware of, such to draw you in to greater levels of holiness. But there is much likelihood that you and I have sinned our way out of a sweet abiding walk with the Lord. And that we can then enjoy times of refreshing. What is repentance? Does my lack of repentance impact the way that God works in my life and those around me? Yes. Yes, it does. Should repentance be rare or common in my life? Not out loud, but let's answer that question. Should repentance be rare or common in my life? And what is repentance? Again, it isn't confession. Repentance isn't confession. Repentance isn't forgiveness. It's neither of those two things. Forgiveness forgiveness is a removal of our sin, the guilt of our sin, because of the substitutionary work of Christ. Because those sins were paid for. They were 
They were paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance isn't confession. And it isn't forgiveness. Repentance is a wholehearted turning away from that which is sinful and a turning to the biblical alternative to that. That is repentance. Is it rare or is it common? So again, the question, should it be rare or should it be common? And is it rare or is it common? Let's, do with the, let's go with the should. It should be common. Now let's go with the question, is it rare or is it common in your own life? That's the question. You know, there's a strange kind of comfort zone that some people have. They, they are comforted when they come to Christ and confess a sin with really no intent to change, but they feel that they're entering into the good graces of God merely because they have confessed their sin to Him. But they have no intention of turning. But yet they, they've done some spiritual business with the Lord. And then you're back again. For the same sin, you're back again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And what happens? Well, eventually you eventually begin to you begin to really have theological discussions with yourself, and you say, Well, you know what? It was all forgiven at the cross. And the Lord Jesus doesn't care about what I do anymore, because sin doesn't matter, because I'm in the new covenant. Well, let's look at this for a minute. Let's consider. What repentance unto life is. I would draw your attention to the larger catechism, question 76. The question is, what is repentance unto life? The answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace. Wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby out of, a, out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ, to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sins, that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. Now, it is likely that when you hear a definition like that of repentance, you are likely to incline yourself to those aspects that involve themselves in the initial conversion. Right? And you're saying, I'm safe. That's happened already. But yet, perhaps you forgot that it's endeavoring constantly to walk with Him in all the ways of new obedience. I draw your attention to the Confession of Faith in chapter 15. Don't answer this question out loud. Have you ever heard a sermon on repentance? Have you ever heard a sermon on the subject of repentance? This is rare for me, but this sermon is only about repentance. It's only about repentance. That's it. Our confession 
Chapter 15, repentance must continue throughout our lives because of the body of death and its activities. So it is everyone's duty to repent of each specific known sin specifically. I continue. This makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. Please forgive me for not making the preaching of repentance a priority. Because in this, we rob ourselves of the sweetness of our walk with God. And of course, we rob Him of His glory. What is repentance? Let's look at what it looks like in the New Testament here. The f- repentance was the first word of John's ministry. By the way, I have uh, relied upon a book by a man named Richard Owen Roberts entitled Repentance, the first word of the gospel for the brief scriptural list here that I'm underscoring. The first word of John's ministry in Matthew 3, verses 1 through, p- 1 through 3. Matthew 3, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Pilgrims on this way, I walk right beside you. Do you want to know God? Do you want to walk with God? Do you want it to be said of you when you die, He knew God, she knew God? What is it that levels the pathway? What is it, what is it that would make a straight way in the wilderness for you to entertain and relate and lovingly grow in your relationship so that you can be known just as the Apostle John was known? The one whom Jesus loved. It's repent. Repent. John the Baptist described repentance as that which, that which makes ready the way of the Lord. And yes, that occurs in our conversion, but it also is to occur every day. Every day. What will make, what will make that path for you to Christ? Repentance. The first word of Christ's ministry, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, the Bible says this, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first word of Christ's ministry. We have here this idea of two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world, which is known as the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of evil, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of death. And secondly, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of life, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of righteousness. Children, I'm talking about two kingdoms, just two, only two. Known from these other names, again, the kingdom of death and the kingdom of life. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, if you want to be in the kingdom of life, you must repent. Now we know that repentance is also spoken of in the Bible as a gift It's a gift of God. But it is a gift, of course, that will have its effects in your mouth and in your hands and in your feet. The first word of the twelve apostles, I draw your attention to Mark chapter 12.
excuse me, Mark chapter 6, verse 12. Jesus sends out the twelve apostles. We see here in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 7, but I'm going to look all the way down here to verse 12. And the Bible says they, of course, did respond and obey the Lord Jesus, and they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. People should repent. Now again, we, we should see this. This is a summary of what it is that God is calling us to do. Not only in our conversion, but in our life of Christ. The life that He gives to us, true life, right, is, is repent. Repent. And you may say, well, I thought the first word of the Gospel was believe. No, I just read that it wasn't. It was repent. Right? It's repent. It's repent. Now, you may say, well, I've heard that. If I turn to Christ in belief, then the very nature of that and the function of that is to turn away from sins. Well, let me ask you a question. I believe, I believe that most of you have, in fact, turned to Christ. But have you studiously turned from your sins? Because I happen to know from first-hand experience that I can believe in Christ and still embrace some sin. That I have not tactically prayed and made a plan so that I can avoid and not sin against the Lord. You can turn to Christ and not away from your sins. And so we we want to understand that this is why repentance is so important. Preaching was the... Rather, repentance was also the focus of Peter's preaching. I draw your attention to Acts chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, chapter 2. The book of Acts, of course, is worth reading for its own sake, but nonetheless, what you have in the book of Acts is a tremendous collection of sermons that really focus on these things that are priorities in the Gospel. The focus of Peter's preaching was repentance. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. That was the first word he said. Repent. Repentance is also the last call to the churches in Revelation. I draw your attention to Revelation chapter 2. First, second, third, John. All written by the revelator, the Apostle John. We get here to the book of Revelation. The last call to the churches in Revelation. Five of these churches were called to repent. I draw your attention to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, verse 4. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Repent. 
Friends, the Lord Jesus is speaking to the redeemed. He's talking to a people who have been blood-bought by the Lord Jesus Christ, and He's calling upon them to repent, or He will remove their lampstand. Is there a church at Ephesus this day? I don't know. I don't think so. Not that it was organically connected to this one. Pergamum, Revelation 2, chapter 14. I have a few things against you. You have have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now in this, there appears to be certainly a reference to those who are redeemed and those who are not redeemed. Those who are redeemed are apparently doing nothing about those who are not walking in a way that reveals their conversion. Thyatira, Revelation 2, verse 20. This I have against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and all those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent. Of her works. Of her works. Your lack of repentance splatters and gets a mess on the people around you. Sardis, Revelation chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Laodicea, Revelation 3, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. You want to see the glory of God adorning you? It's real simple. Repent. Do you want to be known as that one through whom Christ shines? Be a repenter. Be a repenter. While repentance is currently certainly an aspect of anyone's entrance into the kingdom of God, it's also to characterize the life of every saint. King David spoken of so much in these books of First and Second Samuel and First Kings that we've been considering is alone the one who enjoys this name, the one who's had a heart after God. And you should ask yourself the question, why is that? Why is David? Why does David alone get this attachment, the one after God's own heart? David alone. No one else in the Bible. You'll search in vain for another one that's described in that way. Why? Well, we could point to a few things. But we know one thing about David was that he was a repenter. 
He was a repenter. And so those of you that have not yet entrusted yourselves to a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that whom you must have to enjoy that which is described as real life. Real. You want to live? Trust in Christ. You want to live a life of sweetness, of growth in grace. When you can look back next year and say, oh, I'm so thankful that God didn't stop working in me. And let us be repenters at heart. Let's pray.